Hello, and welcome to this episode of the ASHA podcast. I'm Fred Wine with the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA. Well, intrepid listeners, this is the fourth and final installment in our series on trichomoniasis, or trick as we call it. And if you've listened to the other episodes, you know the basics. Trick is an incredibly common sexually transmitted infection caused by a parasitic protozoa called Trichomonas vaginalis. There's about 2 million cases of trick in the US each year, but you know, it's really underpublicized. I mean, most people aren't familiar with it. And that can be an issue because the infection can make it easier to contract or transmit other, ST, other STIs like HIV. And as someone who's pregnant, there's an association with preterm delivery and lower birth weight babies. I don't want to be alarmist. Trick is very manageable, entirely curable, but as we say sometimes, you know, it's not nothing. So uh, it's good to talk about it. And of course, in addition to the medical aspects, um, as with any STI, as with any STI, you've got a lot going on in terms of the emotional impact, relationships, and really how our lack of comfort with anything to do with SEX can actually hamper healthcare. So we're going to dive into all of that now with our guest, Dr. Ina Park. Hello, Dr. Park. Hello, Fred. Nice to see you again. Oh, it is so lovely to see you. And I should say. Dr. Arnold Park, our newly minted member of the ASHA Board of Directors. So I'm talking to, <laughs> my, boss, talking to my bosses today, folks. Um, <laughs> so Dr. Park is a professor of family community medicine at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. She's also the medical director of the California Prevention Training Center, and she's a consultant with the CDC's Division of STD Prevention. She's also the author of the best-selling book we're going to talk about for too much longer strain bedfellows, adventures in the science, history, and surprising secrets of STD. So she's the one we need to talk to. <laughs> All right, let's dive right in. So in my long-winded intro, mm-hmm. I mentioned the trick is a bit under the radar and frequently yeah. asymptomatic. So when, so let's say you have right in front of you a patient who's newly diagnosed. Uh, with yeah. trick. What are your main counseling points to get across? So the first thing I do, you know, depending on what their initial reaction is, some people, as you can tell, are visibly upset by the diagnosis. So the first thing I try to do is normalize what's happening here. And I do mention that TRIC is actually the most common non-viral STI. You know, so herpes and HPV are certainly more common, but it's actually more common than chlamydia and gonorrhea. So I just say, listen, you're not alone here. A lot of people get trichomonas. And, um, you know, and, and then I start also by saying this is gonna be completely curable and this is not going to permanently affect your sexual and reproductive health. And yeah, I, I like that point you make about normalizing, but talking about just how common it is because people feel isolated a lot of times, you know, when they, they've never heard of it. And that's a, that's, a, that's a big part, I think, of helping people just understand, you know, you're not alone. Yeah, and, and the other thing that I think um, some reactions I've gotten is that like the person's actually relieved because they have a diagnosis because they were thinking, am I crazy? Do you know what I mean? And, or they've seen somebody else and said, there's nothing wrong with you. Because as you know, Fred, um, from the diagnostics episode that, you know, folks should listen to on this podcast, that trick is not an easy thing to diagnose, you know, just with the microscope looking at vaginal discharge. It's only about 50% sensitive when we do something called a vaginal wet mount. So a lot of people get their trichomoniasis missed. And so they say, well, I have vaginal discharge, something's wrong. And they get told, no, nothing's wrong. So they start thinking they're crazy. And then now we have these really advanced 
um, you know, nucleic acid tests, similar to like a COVID PCR. Now we can really sensitively detect infections. And then we tell people, you're not crazy. You really have something and we can cure it. So people sometimes even feel relieved, believe it or not. So since you mentioned testing, that's an important piece of this. So maybe we can segue just for a second and talk about that. So who, who do you recommend uh, who should be tested for trick? Who should be tested for trick? Yeah, so right now, the CDC only recommends screening. So that means testing when you have absolutely no symptoms. For uh, folks who were born female, who have a vagina, who are living with HIV. Now, that being said, um, so routine screening isn't necessarily happening in the general population, but it is happening in certain populations where there's really high rates of trick. And that's, for example, in correctional settings, um, you know, there's sort of a permissive sort of recommendation to consider screening in those, rec uh, in those settings. But there's, you're not going to see anywhere, Fred, from like a national body saying screen every sexually active woman over a certain age for trick. That um, that recommendation just isn't there. But I will tell you that in my practice, anyone who walks in the door with a vaginal complaint, you should really consider trick and consider getting one of these really sensitive tests. They have these rapid tests that you will hear about on the podcast, you know, on diagnostics. And then they also have these nucleic acid amplification tests. So I highly recommend getting one of those so that you can be most likely to get a, a you know, a, a true diagnosis. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I like that discussion about the evolution of the testing technology. Because mm -hmm. when I started this work back in the Stone Age, it was basically, uh, it was basically all wet mount. You know, you do a, a sample on a slide or maybe a yeah, that's right. Test, but you mentioned the, uh, the, uh, uh, the molecular test. Uh, so just quickly uh, about those, um, I'm just curious, do you think providers understand the full array of tests available to them or are these new technologies still trying to ramp up? You know, I think it's, um, I have seen from, you know, my just different discussions with providers when I go out and do training, there's a lot better availability for the trichomonas um, molecular tests now than there used to be. Um, I will say in other arenas, like mycoplasma genitalium is another one that just sort of be, became available in 2019. People have not really caught on to that, but more people have caught on um, to trichomonas because many of them are already doing those tests for gonorrhea and chlamydia. And so trick can just be an add-on. But um, there are some places like my own clinic where we actually still do both. So if someone comes in with vaginal discharge, we do take a look because if you happen to see trick, you can make a diagnosis right then and there. And that's very satisfying to be able to give someone a diagnosis like right at the point of care. Yeah, so point of care test, that's, uh, I, I had it on my list to ask you about that. So I yeah. think you just touched on the, my question was gonna be, you know, we, well, we talk about that technology a lot with HIV, so I'm curious about the advantages you see with these with these tests and trick um, yeah. and getting getting you know rapid results. As the name applies, seems to be the seems to be the name of the game. Yeah, well, we all know about this from COVID too, right, Fred? We have the PCR tests that we get that take you know time to run in the lab, but sometimes can be turned around in a couple hours. But then, of course, we have the rapid antigen tests that we're doing at home on ourselves, right? Same thing here for trick. We have the you know molecular or PCR-based tests that we send off to the lab that usually take a couple of days to come back. But now there are rapid antigen tests as well that clinics can use to give a, a, a diagnosis right then and there. And then, of course, you can take the discharge and you know, go the old dinosaur method and look at it under the microscope. And, and when you see trichomonas there, um, you know, you're able to make a uh, definitive diagnosis and then treat them then and there. So there are, I think there are huge advantages to be able, being able to do a rapid test 
at the point of care or doing that vaginal wet mount under a microscope. So, Not everybody does that though, just so you know, Fred, a lot of sure, people don't do that. Sure, sure. Um, so let me turn that diagnostics discussion bit back to somebody's newly diagnosed. Yeah. Their issues that you're, that you're talking through with them. What about the partner? Um, what yeah. do you do with partners? Do they get tested? Do you just treat them presumptively? What's, what is the scoop there? Yeah, I mean, generally when someone comes in, I'm not seeing the partner at the same time. Rarely does somebody actually come in and bring their partner with them on that first visit. But um, yeah, essentially we could use, I'm, I'm in the state of California and CDC does have language about this in their guidelines as well, about using something called expedited partner therapy, which we're familiar with Fred, for the partner. So essentially, if I had trichomonas, you know, you could just go ahead and either write me a prescription for my partner, or you could, you know, give me medication if you had prepackaged medication, and I could then hand deliver the medication to my partner. You wouldn't necessarily need to test my partner for trichomonas, um, you could just treat them presumptively. That makes sense. But, yeah. but, but uh, exponential partner therapy, that's not everywhere, right? Is that just in some states, not all states? Well, now it is actually, um, South Carolina was the last state to come on board. So expedited partner therapy is, you know, either legally allowable or potentially legally allowable um, throughout the United States. But Fred, I will say that every state is executing it a little bit differently. So sure. some places are really only doing it for chlamydia and gonorrhea. Um, some places have added trichomonas. So it is, as, uh, as you know, with access to any reproductive health care services, seems to be different state by state, regardless right. of what the, you know, sort of federal landscape is. And there certainly isn't a federal law sort of permitting expedited partner therapy. It's really a state by state issue. Yeah. So you just don't have the same consistency of care or you don't or call. No. Yeah. That's frustrating. Can I add something, Fred? Can I add something, Fred? Please. Yeah. One thing I was going to mention also is that, you know, the thing about treating, if you're seeing a cis woman who happens to have sex with men, you know, you're going to be treating the, um, the, patient with, you know, the, the patient who's got the vaginal trichomonas infection with a seven day course of therapy, but their male partner, if they happen to have a male partner, just gets a single dose of um, metronidazole. So the treatments are going to be different based on whether or not you're the patient or the partner. But, um, you know, again, expedited partner therapy certainly is um, one way to go that's, you know, definitely helps get partners treated as opposed to just passively saying, hey, go tell your partner to go deal with themselves. Right. And if you hand someone medication or hand someone a prescription, then the partner's more likely to get treated. Exactly, exactly. It just makes it much more likely to happen. Yeah. Yes. And you know, when I, when as I was listening to you, I was thinking it's really frustrating that there's not like, nat there, there, we don't have national standards about this. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you talk about prevention, I mean, testing and treatment are such a big part in breaking that infection cycle. And since so many cases of trip, probably about 70%, as I understand it, don't have very obvious symptoms. It's just, uh, yeah, there's just a lot of missed opportunities here for something that is, like you said, the most common non-viral STI. Um, so I'm glad yes. you're doing this podcast. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And Fred, when we become king and queen of the world, we should yes. institute trick screening. Do you know what I mean? And then um, we should institute trick screening and uh, surveillance because I would love to know 
do you know what I mean? More about this organism. And we, there's so much we don't know because we're not asking those questions and doing surveillance about what's go really going on out there. How much antibiotic resistance is there, for example? Um, you know, how many treatment failures are we seeing? And, you know, really how is it affecting the population as a whole? So I would love to do, to know more about that. Absolutely. Okay, so, well, thank you for that. that that's very important information to cover. Um, so I'm gonna twist right back to the psychosocial stuff. So yeah. a lot of people who contact us shortly after a trick diagnosis or having issues with their partner, and I see people contact mm -hmm. us, we get emails, we have message boards, people still just pick up the phone and calls and say, I need help, I don't know what to do with this. Wow. So yeah, we, we, we just get, we, we still get a lot of that. And uh, a lot of times what we get with trick is they'll tell us like one or the other is is blaming or being blamed. Like yep. maybe there's some accusations about infidelity. I mm -hmm. mean, what do you tell patients in terms of talking with their partner about this aspect, the relationship side of it? Yeah. So this is so so I you know not to use not to be like use one of one of my horrible puns, but this is a tricky situation, and I'll tell you why. Um, you beat me to it. I know trichomonas can sort of can hide out asymptomatically in the glands around the, around the vagina and the urethra and not cause any symptoms. So the issue is that when you end up with a trick infection, had it been sitting there for you know a long time or is it just a new infection that you caught from your recent partner because you know they, um, had an infidelity situation. So what I do say when someone is diagnosed is I say, you need to ask your partner. For, first of all, I ask them, have they had any you know, partners outside their current relationship if they do have a main partner? And if they haven't, I say, you know, it's a good idea to ask your partner if they've had other partners. But I don't say this is a sign or a guarantee that infidelity happened. Because, you know, as I mentioned, Based on the last time I looked in the scientific literature, Fred, um, I saw a case of a woman who had trichomonas documented on her pap test, actually. Um, they found trichomonads for more than 25 years. Wow. So, and she just thought that that discharge was normal. She didn't know that she, that was yeah. a, you know, that was a abnormal discharge from trichomonas. So, what I'm saying is that people can have this infection for years. And so unless you're coming into the relationship, never having had any sexual contact with anybody else, it's hard to know whether or not you are actually carrying an asymptomatic infection from the past, which is why, as I mentioned, when we become king and queen of the world, mm -hmm. I would actually like to be able to screen people routinely as part of their bundle of tests that they get before they start a new relationship, because then you know, actually my trichomonas status is negative. So then if you get trichomonas, okay, I can pinpoint who it came from. The way that we have it now, you can't really pinpoint necessarily um, who the infection came from, unless you've been in a very long-term monogamous relationship, you know what I mean? And right. that's been your only partner. And then suddenly you have a new infection. But if you've had multiple partners in your lifetime, it's possible you've had an asymptomatic trichomonas infection for years and it just happened to pop up. So you really answered what was going to be my uh, my my deep dive in that because the current uh, diagnosis with trick stem from the infection that was acquired months or even longer than a year yes, ago. Yes, yes. Yes. So we yes. 
answer that and then you tied that so neatly back to the uh to to the testing piece i mean you know we aren't we aren't really screening for tricks and these infections a lot of times aren't being picked up and you said something important uh the woman who had it for 20 plus years she thought her discharge was normal and that's the thing even when there are symptoms with trick it can mimic stuff that is normal that she that's not right. particularly <laughs> alarming you know it's, no and um, i think if you if, if when you've been living with like you know discharge for a certain number of years, you just start thinking this is my new norm, right? I think when, um, you know, another thing about stigma and the psychosocial aspects, Fred, is that, you know, when you have a certain sort of state, like of your vagina that you understand to be normal, and then when things go haywire, you know what I mean? That can feel like, wow, something is really wrong with me. I feel like, you know, ashamed, like something happened to me. I did something wrong. Do you know what I mean? That can happen. Yeah. But if you happen to be one of those people that this just all seems like the normal state of your, you know, sort of vaginal health, then, you know, you don't feel like anything is wrong. You're just sort of plodding along in life, not knowing that you happen to have this parasitic infection in your vagina. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really so hard to, 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 they have to wrap their heads around everything that's happening with them as the patient, but then there's the relationship side of it. And yes, it's it, it, really so hard. Me, yeah, let me, let's keep, I, this, this is a good discussion. So let me talk about this a bit. Uh, so with, with any STI like trick, or really, like I said in the intro, any, almost anything to do with sex, you know, we're navigating topics that we're not comfortable with. And we really, right. it's not really anybody's fault. I mean, we just don't always have, you know, language or, or a model to use to have these conversations. It's, yep. you know, it's, it, they're very awkward because we're just, we just, I don't think we know how to talk about sex or sexual health, at least not as fluently as we should. So, I, and I want to ask you about patients and providers, both. We'll start with patients. I mean, what do we do to help patients feel empowered? So they're less squeamish and discussing these things. And they just actually feel, you know, they don't have the butterflies in the stomach when, when bringing these topics up or when asking all the questions that they should be asking. Well, so I think, um, you know, as a provider, Fred, I have to say that I do feel like some of that responsibility is on me. Like, especially if I know that the patient, if the patient is coming in for something that is clearly a reproductive health or sexual health complaint, I feel like it's really my responsibility as a provider to make them feel comfortable and to open the door and let them know anything they say is okay in this space. You know what I mean? So I feel like as a provider, I have to then set the stage to say, I want you to know, I talk, you know, I ask all my patients these questions, take a thorough sexual history, make it clear that I'm, you know, open to whatever types of sex they're having, whatever genders of partner they're having, because I think that goes a long way in having the patient get over that initial squeamishness. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. If you feel like your provider is judging you, if you feel like they're embarrassed to be talking about this and you're squeamish already, Fred, I think it's, I actually think it's really hard for the patient to actually ever get over it unless they're very right. empowered or they're having such bad symptoms. They're like, I just, I know you're not comfortable, but I have to deal with you right now because I am in pain or I am uncomfortable. So um, I feel like, you know, we have a shared responsibility, you know, the patient has the responsibility to bring it up. And then I, as the provider, have the responsibility to let them know the door is open with no judgment, you know, and that I'm here to help. So that's, it goes wrong in both directions, Fred, because so many patients have had bad experiences, right? Right. 
where so many patients have felt judged or shut down. And then providers, none of us got enough training to do this. And we all come into the world, like not that comfortable, not having had sex positive education. So, so, so providers have to do so much, you know, learning, you know what I mean? And unlearning of bad sort of habits and stigma. And the same goes for patients. So we're all just kind of fumbling along, you know what I mean? And it's amazing sometimes when you have like that magical interaction where you're like, wow, this person felt comfortable sharing something with me. And now I have enough information to actually really take care of their sexual health. Yeah. And, and uh, you make such a good point that patients absolutely pick up on the cues from the provider. If the provider is nervous or uncomfortable. That just entrenches those feelings in the patient that really stymies these conversations across the continuum for routine checkups where you might want to talk about sexual history and gee, what tests or vaccines are recommended for me all the way through a diagnosis and okay, what the heck do I do now? Yeah, that, that's a real barrier if the provider isn't okay. comfortable. So I like that idea of just making sure this is, like here you're safe, you know, you know, you're welcome, you can talk about these things and that goes along. It doesn't, I mean, it's not a panacea, but it certainly goes a long way to disarming those fears and really having more successful encounters. So that makes perfect sense. Um, let me ask you too about, <clears throat> The fact that trick, despite its high prevalence, it's just really um, not that well known. I mean, people, yeah. just, it, it, you know, everybody knows about chlamydia and HIV yep. and now HPV and herpes, but they don't know so much about chlamydia. What do you think we can do to really give trick its due to really increase this awareness among the public? Yeah, I mean, the re- I'm going to start with your, the first part of your question first, which is why, why don't we know more about it? And I believe the reason we don't know more about it is because, you know, the CDC doesn't conduct routine surveillance on it, Fred. So when they issue these reports every year about there is an STI crisis in the United States, for example, and numbers are going up, you're really only reporting on chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. Right. And so, and then of course, you know, HIV surveillance has its own pot of much larger pot of money to be doing surveillance. So then you're hearing reports about that. So you're just not hearing about it. You're not hearing about it because public health authorities haven't placed enough importance on it to report about it and do press releases and let the public know that, you know, that trick is out there. And I think there isn't a huge community sort of advocating, you know what I mean, to make, right. you know, make, make trick get more attention, for example. Right. So, um, and I think because for many people, it can be asymptomatic and uh, for many folks, it it's more of a nuisance than I think a public health crisis like we're having with monkeypox, for example, right? So I think for all of those reasons, it doesn't get its due, but you know, the fact that it increases HIV risks, the fact that it causes adverse birth outcomes, many people who love trick, like some of your other podcast guests, you know, who you're having in this series have advocated for a long time that we should be paying more attention to it. It, you know, affects women who are older, which, and by older, I mean, you know, in our thirties and forties, it disproportionately affects women with HIV, um, black women, incarcerated women. And these are all folks, you know, for whom we already have huge health and racial disparities. So it would be wonderful to pay more attention to trick. And I love trick, Fred, and you love trick. Absolutely. We need more people to, you know, get into trick. You know, it's when I was listening to you, I thought of something. We actually need like trick ambassadors. And I don't say that flippantly because- 
because like uh, with, you know, one of our programs at ASH is the National Cervical Cancer Coalition. And we yes. actually have a group of about 150 uh, social media ambassadors to whom we give weekly content on HPV and cervical cancer. And they share it in their channels, that yeah. kind of thing. Something like that for Trick, I think would be a boon. Um, so absolutely. Well, and you know what, what I would love, Fred? I mean, you know, just like imagining the future would be if someone finally said, you know what, we should be screening for this bug. And then, you know, so like every sexually active person, let's say under the age of 25, or let's say, well, because of trichomonas, actually, let's say every sexually active person under the age of 40, like let's everyone should get screened. Then I feel like we could make this, you know, like with all of our partners in the field, do a huge sort of social media push and awareness campaign about this and say, now look, everybody should get tested who's sexually active, who has a vagina. And that would go a long way in raising awareness. But right now, you know, it's just only if you're having a problem, we'll test you for it. And sometimes we won't use a very good test. So we won't really know the answer. So it's not in a great place in terms of being positioned to get a lot of attention. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, In addition to our cervical cancer ambassadors, we have a broader cohort of sexual health ambassadors. And we've been sending them uh, trick information while we've been uh, producing and releasing these podcasts. And I think that's something we really need to just kind of double down on. And the other thing is in the show notes, intrepid listeners, I'm going to put some links to resources, uh, including our, we have a fact sheet called 10 things to ask your healthcare provider about sexual health. And it will really help you sort of break the ice in these conversations. We also have a lot of of resources for, for providers in terms of taking sexual histories and you know, just how to make things a bit more welcoming for, you know, for some patients who talk about these topics that don't always come, you know, come, come easily. So we will link to those in the show notes. All right. In my introduction, I mentioned your book, Strange Bedfellows. Tell me, what led you to write the book? You know, Fred, um, I had been in the field of STI uh, research and public health work for about 10 years. And, you know, I was working really hard. And all I saw was that people were still feeling really stigmatized and STIs were just getting worse. And I said, you know, what I'm doing is not necessarily helping the epidemic. And I still see that stigma is such a huge issue. So I decided I wanted to write a book that used storytelling and humor and my own sort of personal sort of examples from my own life to destigmatize, demystify STIs and make people laugh and draw them in with interesting stories and humor so that Typically, STIs are a topic you hear it and you go, ew, you know, and you want to run away right. from it. And so hopefully by using compelling stories, I was hoping to draw people in to the book and, you know, into some of the topics. And, you know, there are actually some topics that I, you know, cover in the book that, you know, I'm really happy that I covered, but then there are things missing. Like I, I should, you know, wanted to have a huge chapter on chlamydia, a chapter on trichomonas that we're talking about right now. And I just had so much content. I couldn't, you know what I mean? Include everything I wanted to. So um, maybe there'll be a part two. I haven't decided. There you go. And, you know, uh, you, you make a good point there about you were trying to bring uh, some humor and, and, and a bit of a lighthearted approach that to counter that initial ew reaction. And that fits perfectly with what you mentioned about providers making their practices more welcoming and, you know, yeah. just letting the patient know this, this is okay to talk about. You know, I see, I, I remember that tone when I was reading your book. So um, that makes perfect sense. And we can get that book 
is it inapark.net? Is that the actual? Yeah, that's my website, inapark.net, but it's available, you know, where books are sold, Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, um, you know, bookshop.org if you want to support your local bookseller. So there you go. All right. We'll also put links to the book in the show notes. Dr. Ina Park, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I mean, you know, the more I do this, the more I listen to you. I mean, it's medicine really strikes me as a marriage of art and science in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, you've got a clinical diagnosis to manage, but of course you've got an anxious human sitting across from right. you who's the one who was just diagnosed. So um, there are a lot of balls in the air that you have to juggle. So thank you yeah. for helping us to keep our eye on all of them. Thank you, Fred. And, and honestly, this is one of those conditions and with many STIs where actually the psychosocial piece is more difficult to manage than the actual treatment. The treatments are often straightforward. It's the aftermath and the relationship issues and the stigma that actually weigh more heavily on patients than the actual treatments themselves. So something to consider for all you all out there. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for your time today. And to all of you listeners, thank you too. You're the reason we do this. So please keep checking back. We'll have more podcast episodes rolling out and send us feedback, info at ashasexualhealth.org. Until next time, take care, everybody. 